All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time is your point of view How does it feel for you Einstein said he could never understand it all Planets are spinning through space Smile upon your face Welcome to the human Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have back with me Nicole Foss. Uh, before we get back to Nicole, I just want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And thanks to our sponsors uh, during this second hour for making this show economically viable. They are Crocodile Gold, Gold Bullion Development, Legend Gold, Barkerville Gold, Great Panther Resources, uh, who we talked to a little while ago, Bob Archer, uh, the president of that company, and uh, Millrock Resources. Well, Nicole, uh, I think there's so much to talk to you about. Uh, we were talking at the break, uh, and, I, and I just realized that um, I don't think we're going to even begin to cover everything you have to say uh, to our listeners today. But let's pick up where we left off and look at some of the alternatives. I mean, I, I wanted to ask you, though, actually, before I get to that, uh, in terms of the cost of Chernobyl, do we have any sense? And I don't know how you can how you can appraise cost. Uh, you know, you got human life, and how do you put a cost uh, on human life when people die and and uh, due to nuclear accidents? But do we have any sense at all of what the cost of that tragedy was, the Chernobyl tragedy? Really, we, we don't. I mean, there there are certain things that are quantifiable. Say the building of the sarcophagus, and in fact, it has to be replaced. And, and so that will be hundreds of millions of dollars. And it, that's replaced out of other income because, of course, it's not generating any income to, mm-hmm. to deal with with the cost. The, the cost in terms of human life, I would regard as enormous. If you look at the official statistics, they would still say that the, the number of deaths was very low. But I find it, in, it absolutely incredible to think that the liquidators, the thousands of liquidators who worked at this plant with no protective equipment during yeah. the cleanup phase did not die in droves. So I, I think there's a lot of mortality and morbidity that happened as a result of Chernobyl that simply has never been factored into the official figures. So it, it is very difficult to quantify the, the impact that that would have had. But it is it really has had a staggering impact in in terms of of costs and and health mm-hmm. well, you certainly had a lot of agriculture, I guess that was taken out of uh, out of the economy as a result of that too, in addition to the lives and isn't that right a lot of the farms and yes i mean there was the, there's a thirty kilometer exclusion zone where people are not supposed to live, of course they do, because they don't necessarily have a whole lot of choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people who are really poor really have no choice at all. And if they're elderly, it probably doesn't matter, because if cancer might kill you in 30 years, but you're already 70 years old, yeah. then that's not really something you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't want to raise children in an area like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the impact on agriculture, there were impacts 
quite widespread impacts. For instance, the Sami people in the north of Finland were told that they were not allowed to eat the reindeer that they they raise Hmm. because the reindeer feed on lichen that preferentially absorbed radioactive isotopes Hmm. from Chernobyl. So that the impacts on the food system were quite widespread. And there was more radiation, for instance, in the northwest of England from Chernobyl than there was from the the wind scale accident, even although wind scale is in the northeast of England and and Chernobyl is so far away. So the the kind of radiation and the fallout that that resulted from Chernobyl was absolutely staggering. Mm -hmm. And and it, it made a significant impact across Europe. It depends where the rainfall patterns were as to where the fallout really ended up. And it was not evenly spread by any means, but but clearly the impact was was enormous mm-hmm. what um, yeah, so so it's really difficult to put cost figures on this, but what you were saying earlier is that you believe that the kind of reactors that um, that are, that they used at Chernobyl should absolutely be be shut down yes they they should and and some of them have been the ones in the Ukraine and it it took them a while to even shut down Chernobyl three, which was right next to the reactor that that blew up. Mm-hmm. They did shut down the plants in uh, Lithuania as a condition of Lithuania being part of uh, the eu so those were the largest r b m k uh, reactors uh, in the world, and the others are all within uh, within Russia itself. And they, there were 16 of them uh, the last time I looked. They really do need to be closed down, I think. It's not just a question of the accident potential, but also they had no containment. Mm-hmm. They, they were operated with no safety culture either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately it's the human factor that makes a, the biggest impact on, on whether something can be operated safely. And you know, if you have something that is technologically a bit dodgy, but it is run by people who have safety uppermost in their minds at all times, mm-hmm. they can probably run it safely. Whereas if you take something that has the latest, greatest everything technologically, and you have it run by, by a bunch of cowboys who have no sense that anything they could do might have consequences, mm-hmm. you're far more likely to have an accident in somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. And there really was no safety culture in the Soviet Union. That was a major part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Even the people who ran these plants were not trained to think in terms of, of accidents. And they were forced to comply with five-year plan limits so that they would be told that they had to commission a plant by a particular date, and all their bonuses would would hinge on whether they did that. So, for instance, Chernobyl 4 was commissioned a good two years before the safety systems that that were related to it. They, They brought it online despite the fact that it was unbelievably vulnerable to station blackout for that entire time. And the accident actually happened when they were trying to commission the safety systems after the fact. And they they switched off a number of of factors that would have made a difference. So it was the interaction of of gross human error with the design flaws of the reactor that really led to to the the horrendous accident at at Chernobyl. And that potential could have been there, at least aspects of that potential could have been there for other RBMKs as as well. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that that design should simply not exist there are many other designs that, that are safer. People have been looking at small modular systems and passive safety systems, and there may be ways in which we could use nuclear power that would reduce some of the risks, but nevertheless that the cost factors we discussed are still an issue, mm-hmm. where is the fuel coming from? Who is going to pay for decommissioning that may not occur for two generations? Mm-hmm. How are we going to deal with spent fuel? None of those issues are addressed regardless of what nuclear technology you choose to employ. Mm-hmm. So we're always looking to pass the cost down to the future and, and probably push mm-hmm. it under the rug. I mean, as we are in the financial sector, I was just thinking you were talking about bonuses at Chernobyl and, and for building the plant and all that. I was thinking about bonuses that were going to Wall Street during the during the housing boom. But that's another issue that we may or may not have time to talk about. I, I, I'd rather guess we won't today because what I want to do, I think, mostly today is, fi- is focus on this financial, on this financial issues. Uh, I'm sorry, on these energy issues, uh, which... Uh, 
of course, have profound financial impacts, and we've been talking a little bit about the financial uh, considerations that go into this, go into these decisions. But let's just look at a couple of the different sources of energy. Of course, we've been relying on on oil and petroleum, uh, much of which still comes out of the mid uh, out of the the Middle East, and we're seeing increased political tensions in the Middle East. What's your sense in terms of the uh, the reliability of uh, our traditional sources of, of energy, um, well, say, from petroleum? Well, I think we're, we're looking at a period of great instability, certainly in the Middle East. And there are other sources that, that America has relied on that do not come from the Middle East, but nevertheless have significant question marks. I mean, Venezuela, Mexico, Canada, these are major suppliers of petroleum to the United States. The, the Mexican state is on the verge of being a failed state. The main oil field that they've used, uh, Cantarell, is watering out at an incredibly rapid rate. Mexico is not going to be able to deliver the supplies it has delivered. Venezuela has a lot of very heavy oil, but is well moving into depletion as well. The United States wants 5 million barrels a day from the Canadian tar sands, but that is simply inconceivable because Canadian tar sands, all it really is is an arbitrage between natural gas and thin crude. It's not really much of a source of energy. The net energy, the energy returned on energy invested is very, very low for tar sands if you look at the whole the whole life cycle. I've heard it described as using $100 bills to light candles in the sense that the natural gas is likely to be far more valuable ultimately than the thin crude that is produced. Mm. And the, the cost, the environmental cost of producing the thin crude is staggering. I mean, mm. they are ruining vast swaths of northern Alberta, and it's really not even an energy source because the net energy is so low. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to be sending... 5 million barrels a day of oil from from Canada to the states uh, mm-hmm. ever not even just not soon but not ever mm-hmm. and then we we look at the the geopolitical situation in the middle east and it, there are a number of regimes that have been ripe for enormous upheaval for a long time if you look at saudi arabia that half the population is under 15 they live in a desert there's been an enormous expansion of population in a short space of time. It's difficult to provide enough supplies of water, desalinated water, and electricity. This is a country run by a very corrupt ruling class that the entire population understands is not following the standards that are imposed on everybody else. Mm-hmm. So th- you, have, you have a population of extremely radicalized young people who know perfectly well that their own leadership violates all the standards that they, are, are, they live by. Mm-hmm. So, so th- they, they despise their own leadership. This is, this is an octogenarian group of, of princes who enjoy unbelievable wealth and, and privilege and do not follow any of the standards the rest of the population is required to follow. This is a recipe for revolution if ever there was one. Mm-hmm. And you, you have a lot of infrastructure that, that is vulnerable to, to sabotage. And there are many people who are motivated to, to do that. So I, I think we really have to regard Saudi Arabia as acutely vulnerable to upheaval. At the moment, we haven't seen mass movements in, in Saudi Arabia but we are seeing many popular uprisings in countries around that area. And I think there will be a lot more of that sort of thing in the future. I think it's only a matter of time for Saudi Arabia. But the the, the potential for geopolitical influence to have tremendous, what they call, above-ground effects is absolutely huge. Mm. And not just in in that area as well, but all the resource-rich regions of the world, if they become centers of conflict, where effectively the great powers are staging proxy wars, like in, in the Cold War era, where the great powers choose client states in resource-rich mm-hmm. regions, pump them full of guns, and then you end up with the potential for a regional conflagration because of all the, the divisions that go back so far in, in these areas. You could find that resource-rich regions those resources become an outright curse for the people who live there because of the level of conflict that could could happen in those areas as a result of those resources. Mm-hmm. So the Middle East, the Caucasus, 
maybe the area around the South China Sea. There are so many areas that where where the, the availability of resources could be a major problem rather than a benefit to the people involved. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly you talk about Saudi Arabia. The leadership there is definitely concerned. Uh, they do seem to sense that they're uh, that they are in some trouble. I believe they were, you know, handing out uh, candy to the children, or let's say they were doling out billions of dollars to the people to try to pacify them. But how long can that can that work? I wonder. I doubt if it will work for all that long. I, I think we're going to see much more in the way of geopolitical upheaval. It, it might work for a while, but I think all it does is buy them time, and I think they probably know that. Mm-hmm. So. I, I think they realize that they're just putting off the day when they're going to have to face a, a state of reckoning. Mm-hmm. And th- there are many issues in Saudi Arabia. The, the infrastructure is not in a wonderful state of repair. A lot of it would need major amounts of investment. A lot of the fields they're trying to develop are problematic for one reason or another. I, I think Saudi Arabia has a, a major day of reckoning coming, and their leadership has been propped up by the states for a very long time. There's been yeah. a, a kind of mutual uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of kind of arrangement right. that has kept the, the, the princes in, in power. I'm not convinced that that will necessarily last for all that much longer. Right. Well, certainly uh, it's the United States military, and the United States spends more money on military. I think I've, I've heard it said recently on, on, uh, on wars, and it's military-industrial uh, complex more than, than all the other countries combined. So what happens to the U.S. if Saudi Arabia falls and that whole region falls, and does it fall? And do you see, uh, you know, vying uh, 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 world leaders, let's say um, China and Russia, for example, or, or some other superpowers emerging that would, be, that would look to try to, to gain some influence in that part of the world and push the U.S. aside? Oh, very much so. I think we're looking at a tripolar uh, situation where you have the U.S., Russia, and, and China that are all right now competing for access to energy reserves in different parts of the world. All of them know perfectly well that oil is essentially liquid hegemonic power. Uh-huh. So he who secures access to oil supplies secures an enormous advantage in comparison to their rivals. So mm-hmm. they're picking different parts of the resource-rich world as to be the, the areas that they, they choose to uh, to buy for. But nevertheless, I, I think we are going to see a replay of what was called in, in the 19th century the Great Game, which was competition for resources between between major powers. I think that's very much on the cards. And uh, China is arguably the empire in the ascendancy. Mm-hmm. So I, I think its role in the future will will be larger than it than it is now. The United States is going to be facing a lot of problems, and and so is Russia. Quite frankly, the United States and Russia are probably about equally depleted in terms of of oil reserves, mm-hmm. probably in excess of eighty five percent depleted. That doesn't mean that you can't produce any more oil in these places, but but you're doing it on a much smaller scale. I think okay. if the U.S. loses its ability to import supplies from various other places, if it had to use only what it produces itself, it would maybe have a third of the oil that it has now. Hmm. That would have a serious impact on the way uh, American society would be physically capable of functioning. Mm-hmm. Standard of living would would be decreased very dramatically, I would guess. Oh, yes. Uh, well, this uh, sort of brings us up to the topic then of peak oil. I mean, peak oil, clearly, uh, I think, if I understand peak oil theory, basically uh, even people like Matt Simmons, who's uh, passed away now, but Matt Simmons and other peak oil theorists weren't saying that you're not going to produce any oil. It's just that the marginal, the cost of producing the next barrel is going to be so prohibitively high that you're going to see your standard of living decline very dramatically. Isn't that what peak oil is all about? Yes, uh, basically, because energy in physics terms is the capacity to do work. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you have a much lower supply of energy, you cannot maintain the level of socioeconomic complexity that we have built because that level of socioeconomic complexity has, has been driven by access to cheap energy. So we, we have 
enabled our societies to develop in a way that we cannot now sustain. And I think we're going to see a tremendous effect going forward. I mean, we, we are still dependent for 90% of our oil supplies on the major fields, the supergiant fields that we were mm. discovering in the 1960s. Mm. What we discover these days are tiny fields compared to the, the giant fields of the past. And it's not that we haven't looked for more supergiant fields. We, we have. We're now looking in extremely challenging environments where the net energy would be very low, the physical and financial risks would be very high, places like the Arctic and the deep offshore or tertiary recovery techniques in some of the places where it was once easy to produce oil. Now we're trying to get the last dregs out at great cost and having to put an enormous amount of energy back into the system. Essentially, we're looking at at a decline in production, but not only a decline in production, but a much sharper decline in terms of available net energy, because it's absolutely vital to take account of the energy we're having to put back into the system to produce more energy. So it's not just how much energy you produce, but how much of that of what you produced is then surplus that is available for society's purposes versus how much are you having to immediately plow back into the system to produce more. Sure. The decline in net energy terms is very, very much sharper. There may be a long tail, maybe a couple of hundred years, but at a very, very low level in comparison to what we have access to now. Mm-hmm. Certainly means the living standards are going to have to decline one way or another, whether we want to recognize it or not, I would think. We only have about Absolutely. four or five minutes I mean, left, and there's so much American more to talk about. I'm not sure not where to go negotiable. next, but I, I guess I have to talk to you. I have to ask you about coal. Uh, are, are there some technologies that could make coal more 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 environmentally friendly, or should we just forget coal? And then the question is, well, what should we do, Nicole? And I'll leave those two questions with you because we're, we're just running out of time, and I'm hoping that I'll get you back sometime because you do have so much more to say. My brother was right about you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I don't think we can really make coal realistically any more environmentally friendly than it is, but nevertheless, I think we will rely on it a lot more in the future because it's there, because mm-hmm. it's available. And as oil depletes, I think more of the energy demand will be shifted on, onto coal, and that will have inevitable environmental knock-ons in, in terms of local pollution, environmental externalities, and also effects on, on emissions of, of uh, carbon dioxide. We, we are going to be making a Faustian bargain, another short-term decision, but the cost of not doing it could potentially be freezing in the dark in a number of places. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that we are going to make these kinds of decisions, whatever the long-term impact, because the people who make the decisions are concerned about the short-term impact rather sure. than the long-term. And in the short-term, it means they will have access to energy when otherwise they wouldn't. Sure. Well, I mean, it's hardly uh, it's hardly to f- fair to blame policymakers for saying uh, for choosing not to freeze. Uh, in the dark um, uh, for the sake of of a clean environment. It's very difficult to ask them to make that choice, would it not be? It is, but it's it's not just a question of a clean environment. It's, say, their children and grandchildren's future Mm -hmm. and and things like that. It is a more uh, broader, more complex question than simply whether or not the the area is clean. So we we do need to look at balancing the long term and the short term, I, I would argue, and we're not good at that as a species. We really only have the capacity for somewhat short-term thinking. And when we move into periods of instability, that short-termism actually increases enormously. So Mm. just at the point where long-term management would be the most useful, we tend to forget all about it and just worry about where our next meal is coming from. Right, and it's it's understandable, certainly. Uh, I mean, I think that way for sure. Uh, and, and I'm not, uh, you know, as bad off as some people are in this world, certainly, uh, you know, physically and uh, financially and so forth. But okay, so you, but you are doing some positive things too. And I see my engineer tells me I have a minute left to go. Uh, tell me just a little bit about. I think biogas is one area. Is that an area that might have some promise? It's it's a very good technology. It's not an energy source, I would say. It's a way of reclaiming energy from waste. 
so that you don't have high energy throughput. So it can make a difference. I would argue it's too often used at a very large scale for the purposes of earning a lot of money through feed-in tariff contracts. I think if it was done more at the farm scale, then there would be a greater potential to actually keep the agricultural sector going for longer, which would be a wonderful thing. Biogas is a great technology. There are many other renewables that are really useful, but they are limited in what they can do for us. The net energy is not high. They're intermittent energy sources. Often there's an inbuilt fossil fuel dependence and a grid capacity dependence. So it's not as simple as to say we could simply run the world on renewable energy. We really can't, not with the infrastructure we, we currently have and at the levels of demand we currently have. So we need to look carefully at what renewable energy can realistically do for us and what it can't. Well, Nicole, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. You have so much to say. There's so much more that I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to get to the financial markets. I wanted to talk to you about that. All of this is interrelated, and I think one of the one of the very interesting things you're doing is pulling together various various disciplines and and seeing the interrelationships. That's that's very very important. It's important as an investor to be able to see the interconnectedness of these different uh, issues and these different problems that we're facing around the world. Uh, so I really hope that I can get you back sometime in the near future. Would you agree to do that? I'd be happy to. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nicole Foss, for being with us today. Folks, don't go away. We're going to have Bob Hoy come back, and Bob will have some ideas, too. Uh, certainly does have some ideas about global warming, the environment, and the markets, as you know. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Bob Hoy. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals 
giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with Bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Trading Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Bob Hoy. Bob's been with us a number of times in the past. Uh, he has a degree in geophysics and uh, a number of fascinating summers in the mining industry. You know, he, he was um, actually he was in the bush uh, one winter, and he sort of figured that, you know, hey, wait a minute, uh, I've got this degree in geophysics, but maybe, well, I don't know about this, uh, you know, 30 degree below uh, temperature uh, maybe I'd like to uh, just sort of watch the financial markets and, and use my brains to, to make money in a nicer environment. So I, I guess that's what he's done. And he's not only made money for himself, but he's done very well for a lot of other people. Uh, Pivotal Events is one of his publications he writes. And he is, uh, I, he is, Bob Hoy is one of those people that in my talks uh, around the country when I talk at, uh, at conferences and so forth, almost always Bob Hoy's name comes up in my uh, in my talks, because I have such a uh, such a respect for a lot of his views, Bob really uh, takes a view of history, and very few people do that these days. Very few people in Wall on Wall Street or in the financial markets really go back and try to take lessons from history, even though we're, you know, even though we're, we would all be well served to do that. Well, welcome, Bob, again to turning hard times into good times. Yeah, Jay, it's good to be with you, and. Uh... We're also in some very fascinating markets, and also, by the way, thanks for the kind introduction, but back then, I made the mistake of making money on the first stock I ever bought, so I thought it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> and you were and a young then fellow been, then, and I've been trying to figure out how to make money and, ever and since. Invinci- so you were what invincible, the, and oh, man. Um, one of the big things now, of course, is this. the markets became super excited, and, and to step back on this, the last big, really, event was the end of the crash in March of 2009, mm-hmm. when we thought there would be a very big rebound in the financial markets to very excited times. And, uh, and this has gone on to uh, even greater uh, excitement than we thought possible. But what seems to have happened here, Jay, is that for whatever reasons, and I think maybe a lot of it has to do with the resiliency of the China economy uh, over the last couple of years, is that the rebound in the stock market continued because you ended up with a, a, an expansion in business activity. So you had what we would call, we've been calling the first business cycle after a classic post-bubble crash. So then, uh, then back in October, we were noting that uh, the markets were getting pretty buoyant. You had uh, a really good market going for 
the grains because agricultural products because you were getting some um, weird weather in various crop growing areas. So then we wondered about the fascination of how uh, a market, a stock market that was in sort of intermediate swings up and then down, get a little overbought, sell off, how then it would go into uh, a strongly speculative move, which it did. Then we have a proprietary model called the Momentum Peak Forecaster, and that started to raise uh, its uh, target level. It, well, it became effective in late November, and then early December we got our first study out on that, and it pointed out that so, that this uh, indicator goes straight up when the speculation really builds, and then when it stops going up, it then becomes the warning, and it stopped going up at the end of December, and in which case, using uh, seven previous examples, the high for the big action would be some two and a half to, or, or to three months later. So that counted out to somewhere in March or perhaps late April or, or late, uh, late of February, and uh, this is what we're getting. So uh, the thing now is to look at what would follow this. And so then we go back to previous examples. Now, I discovered this uh, technique and indicator in the first part of 1998, and then it reversed and, and effectively led by three months the long-term capital management disaster. Mm -hmm. That market was in narrowing credit spreads, and the beauty of uh, this forecaster model is that it works no matter what the the speculation is in. Mm. So that one was the big speculation is that European central banks were going to narrow credit spreads on all those different European countries. Long-term capital management was long leveraged to the hilt. And, of course, what happened is spread started to widen, and it took them out. And that at that time, I think it was a $4.5 billion disaster. Mm -hmm. Central banks had been backing them. So it was a major, major event. And then since then, uh, in real time, so it worked in real time, first time off, and then since then it gave a signal in 04 and on uh, backtrack to 1970. This was the first, that was the one that, it, there was nothing, there were no big phenomena on that one. It just seemed to give the signal. Mm -hmm. And then the next one was in May of 06. And we looked at what was perhaps the hottest item then, and that was U.S. real estate prices. Yep. And the Case-Shiller Index on house prices had its high that June, July, so it led by a month or so. And then in August, we thought, oh, this is getting real, and wrote up oh, a very lengthy piece on real estate bubbles in the past and assumed that this, the, the real estate bubble then was over, and indeed that was the case. So let's go back to what more we can glean out of this uh, momentum peak forecaster. And when the action is uh, includes uh, commodities, uh, it gets really interesting uh, and backtracking. It gave a signal in November of 1973, and the big mania in commodities then concluded three months later. The other thing that was interesting is that the signal gave uh, was in November of 73. Then sometime later, the National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, came along and said that that recession started in that November. Mm -hmm. uh, at, uh, you know, this is, it's sort of a, well, you can't, it's not quite coincidental, but it's there. Mm -hmm. So then the next big signal from this item was the biggest one, like a, Anything above 1.21 on this indicates uh, a dangerous condition. And then the higher that goes, uh, the bigger the bubble, because then it got up to 1.37 mm -hmm. with the mania in gold and silver that climaxed in January of 1980. Mm -hmm. And again, that one, for some reason or other, gave the signal in November, and it was uh, two and a half months before... The peak on, and I, I, I've memorized the date, Jay, 
mm-hmm. January 21st, 1980, with silver at 48.5 and gold then at 850. Mm-hmm. Then looking at uh, when the recession started, well, the signal was given in November. The recession started that January, i.e., when, effectively, when the speculation failed. So then uh, that was a good one. And then in 1987, and that stock bubble, it led by the three months, and that was kind of nice, too. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Now we, we have an indicator that has been pretty reliable uh, since 1970. It indicated that the markets were going to become highly speculative, which they did. It also suggested that it would climax somewhere centered around March. So I'd say maybe two weeks before the beginning of March or two weeks after the end of March. And as it turned out, uh, things peaked uh, well, you had the grains kind of peak out, uh, I think, third week in, in February. And, mm-hmm. and then gold and silver more recently. So uh, it, it was kind of a rolling top of a number of things. And uh, so we put out our our summary on that one last Wednesday. And the title was High Alert. Yes, on High Alert. Uh, on High Alert. On and March 9th. That... Everything was in that suggested a turn. We also had some other indicators uh, on silver, like showing an upside exhaustion, and and there were other suggestions that perhaps hot action could conclude sometime in March. Also, you got kind of got seasonal on uh, copper, for example. Often it can do a big high around March. So there's lots of other backup other than just this one indicator. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I think... Uh, we're very confident that this is more than likely a secular, a, a cyclical high mm-hmm. for the business recovery that began in June of '09. Mm-hmm. It's likely a cyclical high for uh, base metal prices, likely a cyclical high for grains and agricultures, also perhaps um, definitely for the stock market. And this leaves us then with uh, gold and silver, and they should be treated a little differently. And uh, as the precious metals from time to time can be unique. So, uh, in and this Jay gets us into our old historical work on uh, the only way to really understand price action in gold is to take it and divided by a consumer price index in the senior economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be England. Uh, more recently, it's the U.S. And because then back in the 1800s in England, you had long stretches when sterling was convertible into a fixed amount of gold, and therefore the nominal price didn't change. But then if you take annual numbers and divide the two, gold by the CPI, you find out that gold does some very regular patterns, and particularly around the climax of a great financial mania. So this goes back to 1700. The first uh, great financial mania was the South Sea Bubble of 1720, when the whole world had to buy stocks. Uh, the, The government was very keen about it because it was part of a scheme to retire deeply discounted government debt, so they were making money out of it. And trust me, nobody did anything to stop that bubble. (laughs) Not at all, because it was profitability. Prosperity was flying all around. So then, of course, it exhausted itself and crashed. uh, uh, But what you want to look at is the real price of gold. And in a financial mania, in a boom, when the prices of base metals and grains are going up, uh, the purchasing power of money is going down. Mm-hmm. So when you got gold convertible into money, uh, then the purchasing power of gold is going down. Mm-hmm. So this then becomes the pattern when you're in a great financial mania, the real price of gold declines, and so if you're in the gold mining business, your profit margins will be 
uh, narrowed or maybe even turned to zero, uh, mm -hmm. depending on how high, say, energy costs go relative to what you're getting for the price of the bullion you're mining. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. For sure. This, yeah, this, this carried through uh, the <coughs> bubble of, next one was 1772, mm -hmm. same thing, it declined. And then the next bubble was 1825, and same thing, gold's real price declined. And right on through until recent. And then the other half of that one, Jay, is that once the bubble year is over, then the real price of gold goes up. Uh, typically for a couple or three years on the first recession after mm -hmm. a bubble. Mm -hmm. So what we do here is that earlier calculations of consumer price indexes or wholesale price index are can be considered as reliable, but since uh, the Clinton calculation of the CPI, you can say it's not reliable. Mm -hmm. And it only comes out once a month. So then, uh, many years ago, uh, we wanted to use the Economist All Items Index, because it's a good broad index, but you couldn't, we couldn't use it because we couldn't manipulate it and couldn't get it daily. Mm -hmm. So then created our own commodities index, and we hoped it would be close to the behavior of the Economist All Items, and it has been. So then that gives us uh, a proxy for the real price of gold. It's the price of gold in U.S. dollars divided by our commodity index. And uh, then you see then here right with the bubble that... Uh, at least the credit market side uh, changed in May of 2007 from mm -hmm. boom stuff to bust stuff. And our real price of gold with that boom declined to 143 in May of 2007. Mm -hmm. And then it started turning up, and it turned up two weeks before the first uh financial problem appeared with uh, Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns in early yeah. June. Mm -hmm. And so then what you had is the real price of gold went up as the, as the credit markets went down, so to speak, and that is the way financial history works, so that by the time you got to the end of the summer and into the fall, uh, there were a number of indicators that the stock market in, in that no, uh, October was running out of steam, and that the change in the inter in the credit markets would continue, and as we phrased it, it would become the biggest train wreck in the history of credit, which, which it did. Well, so that brought down the bear market and started that recession. I know, Jay, what we should mention is then the unique um, characteristic of the end of a great financial mania. Right is that the stock market tops out this time in, in October 07, mm -hmm. and then within a month or so, the business cycle tops out, and, mm -hmm. and that was uh, in the December of 07. Now, usually in a normal business cycle, the stock market leads the top, uh, the peak in business activity by, oh, 10 to 12 months. Mm -hmm. And the only time the bear market and the recession start virtually at the same time as at the end of a bubble. Uh, mm -hmm. 1929, the uh, high for the stock market was in early September. The recession, or the, let's go the other way, the peak of that business cycle was in August, mm -hmm. and you started the recession. 1873, that uh, the NBER had pre -ca back calculated the business cycle stuff back to then, actually to 1850 or something like that. So then the 1873 bubble also blew out in, in, uh, in September, and the recession started that October. So mm -hmm. where evidence is available, the, at the, you know that it's the end of a bubble when the business activity fails with the bubble. So, mm -hmm. uh, so this then really puts us into a classic post-bubble contraction. All right. Let and me ask the, you. The uh, authorities, of course, did everything they could to prevent it. You had uh, Greg Manku, Harvard interventionist economist, in December of '07, 
who boasted that nothing could go wrong because you had a dream, a quote, dream team of economists at the Fed. Mm-hmm. Nothing could go wrong. So right. <laughs> Such hubris. Then, yeah. Uh, Bob, yeah. let me ask you, I need to ask yeah. you this, though. Um, we had a peak in 2000. Yeah. Uh, then we had a Dow that got to the height, as you just mentioned, in 2007. We have yeah. a NASDAQ, though, that never made it more than about yeah. halfway higher, the, you know, halfway back to its peak in 2000. Are we in a secular bear market yet that might have, that might have started in the year 2000? Or, or what's yeah. your take on this? You can look at that on the NASDAQ, definitely. But the... That uh, dot-com high-tech mania really had was quite unique. First of all, there was no big uh, run-up in commodity prices with that one. Sure, they firmed up, but there was nothing too exciting. Yeah. Uh, House prices were uh, buoyant, but not speculative. And one of the things you need for the full classic bubble is beyond stocks going up and lots of speculation in debt securities, uh, you've got to have um, essential commodities going up and real estate going up, the whole package. So for whatever reasons, uh, in, in 2000, that tech bubble didn't accomplish the full characteristics of the great bubbles that end a long period of business expansion. So it was fascinating at the time. And so, uh, But here we are, we're, we're, we're dealing with now. And uh, the other thing is the policymakers, which we were talking about, with the great stimulus. So uh, we've always been doubtful about stimulus and uh, because it has a tendency not to go into losing situations but it has a tendency because look at the money goes into the banks. Right. The banks are essentially Wall Street, and Wall Street, after getting burned in a crash, is not going to go out and buy a bunch of losers. They're mm-hmm. trying to get off them. Sure. So they'll 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 find the next winners, which then happen to be you know you had a good one. Well, you'd have a rebound in the stock market, but what was uh, really good for the game was. The weird growing weather that prompted uh, some uh, crop shortages in a very good market for agricultural prices. And then you had the unique situation with uh, China uh, actually buying more inventories and base metals than they were actually using, building investment positions. Okay. Bob, we only have about a minute before the break here. I want to ask you, though, do you believe that... uh uh, so, so are you looking at the equity market as as peaking in 2007? Is this, would this be a secular peak, or is 2000 a secular peak? And then, where do we go from here? Do you think there's a lot further down to go? Do you think we'll take out the March 2009 lows in the equity market? Uh, at some time, yes. Okay, well, we'll it's come back and we'll talk more about that after uh, we go to break. So we'll be right back Very with good. Bob Hoy. Don't go away. <laughs> 